From KIOS in Omaha, you're listening to Riverside Chats. I'm Tom Noblock, and today I'm talking with Lydia Kang, who co-wrote the new book, Patient Zero, A Curious History of the World's Worst Diseases. You know, it's interesting. I think there's some times where I'm like, oh my God, we we are getting better. Like things are getting better. Like if you look at science and like the quickness with which we can now uh, figure out what the genome is of a new virus that we've never seen, like we can do it in a day. It's 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 unbelievable how fast that is. And then, and you realize, you know, there is an immutable, unchanging nature of, of humans, which is that we have to deal with each other and we're not easy to deal with. And I don't think that's ever going to go away. We talk about the massive scientific advancements made to combat infectious diseases, how our reactions to pandemics have and have not changed, and what might be in store for our future. Stay tuned for the conversation after this break. Riverside Chats is sponsored by listeners like you. Pitch in to keep this podcast going strong, bringing you the unique perspectives, personalities, and topics you love. Click the listener support link in the podcast notes for this episode to learn more. Welcome to Riverside Chats. I'm Tom Noblock. Today I'm talking with Lydia Kang. Kang practices internal medicine right here in Nebraska and has written several novels. Her latest book, co-written with Nate Peterson, is nonfiction and incredibly timely. It's called Patient Zero, A Curious History of the World's Worst Diseases. It chronicles how diseases spread, the scientific race to understand them, and how we try to destroy them before they destroy us. Kang and Peterson combine the human stories behind outbreaks with historical examinations of missteps, milestones, scientific theories, and more in a funny but accessible read. Here is my conversation with Lydia Kang. It's exciting to talk to you about your new book. I see you've written a million books and done a million things, but primarily we're here today to talk about Patient Zero and uh, early in the book, in the introduction, you note that we tend to think of our species origin story as a unique miracle of evolution. But it turns out that bacteria and viruses have been evolving right along with us, often within us, and at a far faster clip than we do. So I want to start by just thinking about why, why isn't that part of our broader way of thinking about evolution? Why is it evolution is always so human-centric? <laughs> that's, a, that's a good question. Um, I think that humans are are very human centric to begin with. You know, we are um, just as an individual, um, as a collective, we're pretty engaged in making sure that we succeed. Um, you know, again, like on a personal level, on a species level, and uh, that means focusing a lot on ourselves. And um, we also tend to look at all the things around us and our ecosystem, um, you know, inside our bodies, which have its own ecosystem. Um, you know, we used to, used to always think of it as a sort of separate thing that's like apart from us. And I think a lot of times we forget that we're very much enmeshed in um, this, uh, this world and in ways that we are kind of unaware of. Was there a point for you when you started to feel connected to things that are not so human centric? Like, was it a moment or sort of gradual for you to get there? You know, I think for me, it's been a gradual process throughout my life. Um, I think I, I went from being a, a pretty um, sort of self-centered person, just sort of like trying to make my way through college and grad school and survive and have kids and all that kind of stuff. And um, But, you know, as I've been sort of... Um, enmeshed in science my whole life. I've had these sort of revelations, oftentimes at the same time that, you know, everybody else is having them, you know, for example, like take our gut microbiome and sort of realizing that there's this sort of entire organ inside you that consists of, you know, um, you know, gazillions of bacteria. And, and you, you, you always tend to think of yourself as this sort of like entity that, you know, has control of its, of itself and, and it's, it's world around, around us, but then you kind of forget that, you know, you're actually this, um, this, this organism that has organisms in it and you rely on them for health. And I think we're a lot more aware of that, but, you know, seventies and eighties and nineties, we, we weren't. And so there, that's like just one example, I think of ways that I've, I've sort of come to realize that I'm a very small being in a very large place and, um, and vice versa. Yeah, I wasn't sure if there was maybe a moment like for me, I know getting sick or like people around me getting sick or a big one for me was my cat uh, had C. diff and was having terrible <laughs> diarrhea 
all the time and well, almost died from it. And it then, then turned into this battle of we gave him antibiotics, but then it killed all his butt, his gut bacteria. And so then we had to give him prebiotics and probiotics. And it just, you know, like <laughs> I think that was actually very useful for me to try to understand, oh, OK, I think I kind of get how many complicated layers of things there are going on just to have like a normal day of digestion even, right? <laughs> I know we take it for granted, right? Until everything goes like completely off the rails. Um, I, I can't believe your cat got C. diff. I didn't know cats got C. diff. That's terrible. Um, it was terrible. Yes. <laughs> it's like a horrible disease to have. Yeah. And um, it's funny. My brother just um, adopted a, a rescue cat and it gave some members of the family ringworm. And I'm just like, we're kind of like laughing through it, like laughing through the tears of, of kind of how, you know, um, we are just, you know, it, we're so apt to get infected by things around us, by things that we love and cuddle. And it's just, um, you know, it's, it's a dangerous world out there. It is. Yeah. Well, I mean, so... To bring it to the book then, I mean, does, does, did you find that learning about all of these infectious diseases, the way they originate, the way they spread, does that change your way, like your view of walking down the street and just the possibility of getting bit by a mosquito or a tick? I feel like there's a lot to be anxious about after doing all this research. You know, if anything, I've gotten less anxious in, to a, a, on certain levels because I have we read and we were writing so much about you know how things were in the past like you know there was the plague there was cholera measles smallpox typhus typhoid i mean they're just these countless horrible diseases that were just at any moment could take you out and the fact that we live in you know a first world society with like clean water and and you know general access to medical care it's obviously not equal for everybody um, but just to know that like you've got a much better chance of living um, a life because you don't have to deal with all that makes me feel extremely thankful that I live in the time that I do um, but I think the pandemic probably brought into focus how very um, kind of delicate that balance is that we sort of imagine that we're in this safe environment and we can tackle anything that comes our way. And it's, I, I think, you know, uh, I think COVID basically through that, you know, just completely out of whack for us and, and our, our sense that we could sort of tackle things that came our way. Like, you know, we did not, and we're still in it and it's still going. And, you know, it's, it's a big lesson that we're just in, kind of learning as, um, as the days on go. So yeah, I thought it was interesting that your book chronicles the way that curing diseases or addressing them, trying to prolong the greater amount of health for the most amount of people, has both been constantly controversial, but then also really effective as sort of a motivation to understand the world around us, how bodies work. And so much of the scientific revolution, it seems like, was motivated by or informed by trying to address these diseases. So, I mean, I think it's interesting, though, that there, there is sort of that parallel, right, that it's sort of always been very controversial, but then it has yielded really revolutionary ways of our understanding of everything. Yeah, it is. It has been very controversial and it continues to be controversial because there's always a sort of push and pull between like us and them. Right. Um, I, I think that, you know, the, the book at its center is a little bit about beginnings, right? Where do these infections start? When do they first land on our shores? You know, um, and, and there's a, a natural um, finger pointing, I think that happens to try to understand, well, where did everything come from? We got to look at the beginning, which means what feels like putting blame on something. And, and ultimately a lot of what I, I found in, in writing the book along with Nate Peterson was that we're kind of all to blame. Like there's the finger pointing only sort of unearths a lot of the things that we have set up as a, as, um, a civilization to really screw with our own health, you know? Um, so that was a big revelation. I think I kind of knew it sort of going in. I knew going in that we were gonna have to be very careful about, you know, when we do a patient zero story, are how much of this is going to be a blame game. And, and we really didn't want it to be that. We wanted to look and sort of peel beneath the story of where did the plague start in the United States and go into some of the more really uncomfortable looks at, you know, why diseases hit, um, hit our communities. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that in today's culture, or just I think anytime you're living in the present, it's difficult to contextualize what happened before and how different or similar it might be to what we're living through now. You've got a quote that I thought was useful for kind of trying to talk about this, which is, 
Throughout human history, we've been hit with plague after plague, and our response is pretty much always the same. In desperation, we resort to a wide variety of unusual, ineffective, or outright dangerous remedies while hoping that science catches up to the disease. So, I mean, what are some examples of that happening that that stand out to you? Well, that's been going on for a long time. I think, like, probably one of my... um one of the one that stands out from both um, this book and also from researching um, quackery, which is our previous book, is um, the use of of uh, bloodletting and purging to try to cure things. So, you know, for um, a, a very, very long time, for hundreds of years, um, well beyond that, actually, you know, people thought that, you know, the the bodily humors were would go off and that was what would cause disease this is before they understood germ theory right so you know so when yellow fever would strike um let's say in the late 1700s in philadelphia um which is you know spread by uh mosquitoes it's not it's not actually something that's caused by a problem with your your four humors but you know people um uh like uh benjamin rush were like treating it with um things like um, purging, like taking these, you know, uh, mercury compounds to completely make you vomit and have horrible diarrhea. And then they they would be bleeding, you know, cutting your arm and, you know, collecting a pint or two or three of of blood in a way to try to um, get things under control. And, um, you know, probably killed more people than it helped. But this is what they had at the time. And um, there was a lot of controversy going on at that time, a lot of fighting, um, infighting between doctors and and people about what was the best way to do it. So it's just funny to read that about how sometimes even those um, fights about how how to treat yellow fever uh, fell on um, partisan lines. Um, you know, I was sort of rolling my eyes going like, oh, my God, this is like never, never going to end. Like, you know, some of these things actually do really play out. They just never go away. Um, you know, our our need to try to figure out how to how to treat things and then our infighting about how the best way to do it is. Yeah, we, we did a show recently on the way learning about science gets politicized. Uh, specifically, we talked about the teaching over evolution, the battle, the scopes trial and stories, stories like just sort of like the somewhat sometimes extreme circus that we build around things uh, as opposed to actually sort of like having meaningful conversations about them. Uh, but, you know, mm-hmm. so, so, sometimes stories like that and the, the partisan lines is just the, the circus that gets uh, that gets built around issues that maybe shouldn't be politicized. Is I don't know I don't know about you, but sometimes they make me feel a little bit better about the chaos of today. That essentially everything has always been kind of insidious and dumb, and we're not necessarily living through unprecedented <laughs> times. Uh, yeah. So I mean, do you get any comfort when you do this research and come across these parallels to the insanity of today? You know, it's interesting. I think there's sometimes where I'm like, oh my god, we have we we are getting better like things are getting better like if you look at science and like the quickness with which we can now um actually uh figure out what the genome is of a new virus that we've never seen like we can do it in a day it's 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 unbelievable how fast that is and then you look at all the fighting that we do and like you know the political problems that are have been seen for three four hundred five hundred beyond years and you realize you know there is an immutable, unchanging nature of, of humans, which is that we have to deal with each other and we're not easy to deal with. And I don't think that's ever going to go away. So in some ways, it's sort of like um, kind of frustratingly endearing about the human race. It's just like, you know, we're a pain in the butt <laughs> with each other. Um, but at the same time, we do we do make strides towards the better. But sometimes it's just um, it's amazing how fast and slow things can go, you know. Were you surprised that anti-mask movements are uh, are precedented, that this is not a new thing? I was a little surprised. I think that I had, you know, I wrote a novel um, called A Beautiful Poison several years ago that takes place in 1918. And so I got to highlight um, the influenza pandemic from 1918, the so-called Spanish um, flu. And I had done a lot of research into it at that time. Um, and I just don't remember reading about the mask, the fighting of the mask mandates. So when I, I actually did write that chapter in this book about the origins of the 1918 flu. And when I saw, I was like seeing pictures of people getting just all angry about the mask mandates. And I was like, oh my gosh, it's like, uh, it's almost like a hundred years, a little over a hundred years, um, you know, for the anniversary. And 
we're still fighting the masks. It's amazing. Um, yeah, that was really weird. I, I, when I read that, I think I might have sort of yelped out loud and been like, <laughs> oh my gosh, here we go again. If you're just joining us, I'm talking today with Dr. Lydia Kang about her new book, Patient Zero, A Curious History of the World's Worst Diseases. Join the conversation on social media using the hashtag Riverside Chats. Uh, so how much of a fight was it to get people to accept something revolutionary like germ theory? I mean, that, that totally changes everything. And it's it's something uh, I was watching. What was I watching? I was watching The Last Duel, I think, recently. And just some of the, the medical treatments in that movie, they, they seem like they seem like an SNL parody of like a doctor just saying nonsense. But it's like, no, it's just they had a completely different way of seeing everything. Right. So how did how was germ theory originally accepted and how much was a, of a fight was it to get to where we are now? It was a huge fight. And and a lot of it just stems from the fact that, you know, they're microscopic. You can't see them. Right. And so it's like this boogeyman of like, well, there's this thing that's going around and causing infection and killing people. And people are like, well, show me, <laughs> show me the money. Like, I don't know what you're talking about because I can't see it, you know. And so I think the advent of um, the microscope helped a lot with that. And um, over the course of like the sort of late 1800s, um, there was, again, a lot of fighting with the, the status quo people who were like, you know, surgeons would be, I think there's a quote in the book where surgeons are sort of like, I am a gentleman and a gentleman has clean hands. So you can't say that as a surgeon, like I'm infecting people, but of course they were. But the, the, the data was substantial and it just kind of, it stood its ground and time passed and there were more people on the side of, you know, germs really are real and eventually it it won out because the you just couldn't you couldn't fight the data um so like let me bring up an example of that so one of the sort of seminal um uh first trials that happened with that um happened in the 1800s and there was this guy named um Semmelweis who had noticed that like in this um lying in hospital which is like where women give birth at the time it was more fashionable now for women to give birth in hospitals um was noticing that like women on the maternity wards that were um taken care of by medical students were dying at a pretty high rate of like um of this type of infection and fever that you get after birth. Whereas the women who were being taken care of by the midwives were not dying nearly as much. And he was like, what's going on? And so he went to the midwives, um, you know, parts of the hospital and noticing the midwives were washing their hands more frequently. So he's like, all right, I'm gonna make all the medical students wash their hands. And miraculously, the death rate went down on those wards. And so he was like, oh my gosh, <laughs> hand washing is a good thing. So. It was stuff like that that got you know spread around the the information about that that was it was really hard to argue with with those facts that started to make a a big um, gain in understanding how germ theory worked and then obviously you know when they could actually see these little buggers like under the microscope um, that made a big difference because now it wasn't just this like unseeable boogeyman it was a thing something they could actually see and realize they could grow it and cause disease and. Um, you know, Koch's postulates basically showed that if you have this sick rat and you kill the rat and you take the germs out of it and you give it to another rat and that rat gets the same disease and dies, you have a transmittable pathogen and you can grow it and see it. And it's, it's a real thing. So all these things happened in the late 1800s and people just eventually caught on and they were like, OK, it's a real thing. Well, I, I'm, I'm struck by your phrase, you can't fight the data, because I, I do want to believe that. But sometimes in today, today's world, it seems like people are happy to fight the data. Or uh, so long as somebody says the data who you disagree with, then you just ignore the data, right? I mean, it, it, I guess, it, is that different? Is that new? Are we, are, there's way more access to data, but then that becomes maybe not as illuminating as you'd hope it'd be for the general population. Yeah, data is just a really complicated thing because you know when it comes to science and data you think data is this unchangeable thing like once you get a piece of information it it is it is solid and and you're good and you should stick by it and the thing is that with science is that we are always testing right and so you get a bit a bit of information and you test to make sure that bit of information is real that it's um that you can repeat those those uh, findings to make sure that they're a real thing and um and as we learn more, like, you know, early on in COVID, like, you know, we learned a little bit more about were mass effective and how does uh, COVID spread and, you know, that information change. And I think because there, is, there was some changing going on, it made it more difficult for people to 
to believe, right? Because they're like, well, if you say science doesn't change, but then you, the CDC keeps like changing its um, mind on how to do this and how to do that, like, what are we supposed to believe? And I, I, I totally get that, that insecurity of information. Um, but if you think of where we are now compared to, let's say, a hundred years ago, like, there's very few people denying that COVID as a virus exists, right? So I think early on in the during the pandemic, people were like, it's fake, it's not actually real. And now I think pretty much even people who are um, not so keen on what the CDC has to say or not so keen on, you know, vaccines or how they work or their safety or whatever, we can pretty much, we can all pretty much agree, like COVID's a real virus and it's definitely out there. So, you know, there's small incremental improvements in our understanding of science. I think one of the things that gets us into hot water is how to interpret or how to read that science. And so, you know, the one thing that just bugs bugs me a lot and is very frustrating is when I have a patient who comes into my clinic and I'm seeing them and they're like, oh, well, I read this on a website and it says it's proven to be helpful. And they're like showing me this, you know, random supplement, right? And I look at them, you know, I look at the website with them and I'm like, oh, well, okay, it's true. They are citing a reference, but the reference said, you know, it's about a study with eight people that was sponsored by the manufacturer of the, of the supplement and um, the very hand wavy sort of like, oh, 80% improvement kind of a thing. And I'm like, this is a terrible study. And yes, it's technically data, but it's like really poor quality data. And so that's that's one thing where I think there's a lot of gray zone where people, it's very easy for you to sway the population if you start citing things out with a very loud voice about, well, this and this and this, but people who understand the data We'll, we'll, we'll talk about the intricacies of how, um, how nuanced some of these findings are. And the thing is that a lot of times um, people don't have patience or the stomach for nuance. And I think that's where we have a lot of problems. It strikes me as something that you have maybe more experience in than a lot of medical doctors because you also, you, you know, you write fiction, you write these accessible books, right? And I mean, the Patient Zero book is not something that's inaccessible to the average reader who maybe doesn't know a lot about medicine. So, I mean, how do you find that balance of being able to talk to people who maybe don't have a lot of experience with data, with medicine, and to, you know, make those sort of connections that really land with people that aren't sort of coming from this, you know, jargony, uh, you know, training that, that a lot of people have and that they sometimes aren't able to bridge that gap to talk to people who don't have that training? Right. So that's a that's a great question. And actually, like in medical education, it's something that we work on really, really hard. So from the very it's funny because when I teach medical students who are, you know, super green, like first year medical students, like they just got out of college and they don't know the language. They don't know the culture at all. Right. And so we teach them how to speak to patients, how to to talk to them, how to assess their sort of medical uh, fluency, right? And we adjust the way that we speak to match that. Because if you speak over their head with all this jargony stuff, you're going to lose them. If you speak too far below their understanding, it's it's condescending. So there's this real fine line of, of making that really match your, your patient. And so we work on that a lot in medical education. I think it's gotten better and better over the last several decades. Um, we, we interview uh, fake patients as practice and, uh, and I call them out all the time. I'm just like, you know, you said this word, um, you know, they'll say some word um, like chronic, right? Oh, you know, it's, if you have a chronic disease, like such and such. And that's something that I use all the time and many people use, but other people might be like, I don't know what that means. They're maybe too embarrassed to say something and they just sort of get that sort of like lost in the headlights look and, and you've lost them, right? So we work on that a lot. And I think that... Um, me having done this for 20 years of trying to make sure that my language appropriately matches my patients, whether I'm, or my colleagues or my medical students or my family members. Um, it's, it's, I probably enabled me to handle a lot of the details of these um, novels and nonfiction books in a way that um, has been very, very handy. For sure. <laughs> I'm talking with Dr. Lydia Kang about her new book, Patient Zero, A Curious History of the World's Worst Diseases, which is available now wherever you get books. Let us know what you think. Follow Riverside Chance on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Stay tuned for the rest of the conversation after this break. Hi, and you're listening to Car Free Midwest. We're a podcast based in Omaha, Nebraska, exploring the stories, barriers, and joys of getting around the Midwest without a car. 
Our goal is to build a community around more transportation equity and less car dependency. I'm Sarah Johnson. And I'm Joshua LeBure. We'll be here every other week with interviews, topics, and documentary pieces covering all things transportation. And we'll be talking a lot about bikes, e-bikes, and cargo bikes, because once you get to know us, you'll find that that's what we're obsessed with. So subscribe to Car Free Midwest wherever you listen to podcasts. A production of Figure Podcasts. With support from Mode Shift Omaha. And welcome back to Riverside Chats. I'm Tom Noblock, and I've been doing this show for a while now. Check out the backlog of Riverside Chats episodes wherever you get podcasts. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or whatever your favorite app is. I'm talking today with Lydia Kang, medical doctor and author of the new book, Patient Zero, A Curious History of the World's Worst Diseases, which she co-wrote with Nate Peterson. The book chronicles the massive scientific advancements made to combat infectious diseases, how our reactions to pandemics have and have not changed, and what might be in store for our future. Here's the rest of our conversation. So, I mean, did this book come out of, was it a response to COVID-19 or were you already working on that, on, on the book as that all sort of happened? Oh yeah. We, um, we came up with the idea of this book before COVID came out. So we, um, it was in the fall of 2019. So Nate Peterson and John Miles and I, John is our editor at Workman Publishing. So we were um, brainstorming a bunch of different ideas and we settled on, let's do this great story. Let's do a great book about, um, you know, patient zero stories, like, you know, origin stories of pandemics and, you know, all these terrible diseases that in some ways we've conquered, or even more importantly, we think we've conquered, but have not like polio. You think it's gone, but it's actually not gone. Um, things like that. And then um, we were emailing each other, I think like around the very, very beginning of January, maybe was end of December. And I said, hey, I saw a news thing about an outbreak of a virus in Wuhan, China. Um, this might, I was like, maybe this will end up in the book because I knew that I was going to write a book on um, an outbreak investigation, how to do an outbreak investigation. And I thought, oh, it, if it ends up being kind of interesting enough or, you know, whatever. But, you know, I, I kind of honestly thought it was going to be a tiny thing. It would disappear. And I, I would end up writing about something else. And so... Um, before we knew it, a couple of months had gone by and we were writing a pandemic book in the middle of a pandemic. And we were just, it was just really surreal. I mean, does, did that change the direction of the book at all? Um, it did to a certain degree because, well, first of all, it changed the, um, the speed by which we wrote the book because all of a sudden it was a very timely book. So um, we, we sort of ramped up the, the time uh, to get this to the the you know to publishing so that was one thing and so that made it a really stressful year and then i knew because of covid was such a big thing and we we were not going to be able to avoid the elephant in the room that i was going to write a chapter on covid but i didn't know what i was going to write i didn't know how i was going to write it between nate and i you know nate's a historian and a librarian and since i'm a physician um, a lot of times some of the more um, the chapters that are more science heavy, I tend to tackle because I'm more comfortable in that zone. Um, and so I knew that I was going to tackle the COVID thing. Um, also having like, you know, being take, taking care of patients and my colleagues are like in the trenches, taking care of patients with COVID, like on the wards and things like that. I was like, it just made more sense for me to write, write the chapter, but I didn't know what I was going to write about. And I was stressing out because we had a deadline and I was like, I got to write something in two weeks and I don't know what I'm going to do. And it was really silly because in retrospect, it's so obvious um, to talk about the origins of COVID. So that's what we did. And I ended up doing a ton of digging and reading through a lot of documentation about how COVID unfolded in China, the WHO's response the um, American government's response and basically how um, pandemics throughout time have been politicized. And so that's, that ends up being what I, what I tackled. It was not a light chapter <laughs> in any sense of, of the way. And the funny thing was that um, when I was writing this chapter, it was in November of 2020 and my husband got COVID. My patients were getting COVID left and right. So this is when that big fall surge was happening then. Um, I was being tested for COVID. I was isolating from my kids and my husband, my husband was like isolating in the basement. I was sort of, sorry, quarantining 
And um, my patients were like sending me these messages going like, I got exposed or like, I have COVID and what about the antibody? And I'm trying to write this chapter the whole time. I'm like, this is the most bizarre two weeks of my life. Um, I, it was very, very meta, probably more than I ever, ever wanted. So... <laughs> Well, yeah, I mean, I, I guess I'm curious about because you've written multiple different types of things. You've written various forms of fiction. You've written nonfiction like this. I assume also just writing something that's so close to what you're living might be rewarding, but also it might cause you to want to go write something that has absolutely nothing to do with exactly the anxieties that you have to deal with day in and day out. <laughs> so, I mean, what, what's your experience been like juggling uh, these different types of writing assignments and then the different proximities you've probably had to the subjects? Oh, that's really, that's interesting because when I first started writing, so like it was well over 10 years ago, I started writing with essays about patient care because that was really what I knew and it was easier for me to write. Um, I sort of um, switched over and also started to write some poetry, tended to have to do with life, death and love, which is I think what most poetry has to do (laughs) with. And then, um, and then I suddenly decided I was going to make a big jump and start writing young adult novels. I'd re I've been reading a lot of it and I thought this is so much fun. And if I could just come up with an idea and write something, it would be a blast. And so I did. And at that time I really separated my doctor work from my writing because (laughs) my writing felt oh, so, kind of like irresponsible. Like I'm not spending all my time thinking about like medicine and my patients and reading journals. I'm writing this, this novel. It's so irresponsible. And so I didn't talk about it a lot. And I think I was also a little embarrassed. Like this goes nowhere. Like I'm afraid people are going to be like, Oh, what happened to that great American novel that you're writing? And I'll be like, don't talk to me about that anymore. (laughs) Um, But what ended up happening was I was blogging at the time. And this is when blogging was a big deal. And, um, I was blogging about writing, but I wouldn't talk very much about my my day job. And I realized I was learning so much from the blogging community and other writers. Um, and I wanted to give back to the writing community in some sort of way. And I was like, well, what do I know? Like, what kind of special skill do I have that most writers don't where I could share this information and give back? And I was literally knocking my head against the wall. And um, it's, it's so silly, but in retrospect, um, it's hilarious but I was like oh I could give out free medical advice so I started giving out free medical advice to other writers who were writing scenes that had medical stuff going on in them medications or ER visit or you know what kind of disease might cause this I need to use it in my plot that sort of thing Um, and the next thing I knew I was sort of melding my medical world and my writing world and that sort of like irresponsible shame that I had kind of disappeared and when I got my first book um published with penguin um it felt just really validating i was like okay i'm writing something it was science fiction i I put a little bit of that sort of sciencey medicine in there and i really enjoyed it and so there have been many times where i in a lot of my books there's that sciencey medicine-y toxicology kind of thing um twist in them that i have really enjoyed because doing books it's something that i doesn't i don't have to do a whole lot of research on because i already know a lot of it so it makes it really fun and easy for me. So uh, that's kind of how it happened. It was, I was kind of avoiding melding my two worlds together, and now they are very much intertwined, and I, I celebrate that. Why the move to writing nonfiction books recently? So um, I was in the process of writing Young Adult, and I was writing, I wrote Control and Catalyst, which are both science fiction novels, sort of um, at the height of this dystopian surge of books that was happening in the YA world. And as a result of that, nobody was buying any dystopian science fiction books. Like people were kind of petered out on that, right? And so I was having a lot of difficulty selling another book. And I thought, okay, my career's over. It It was a fun run. I wrote two books. That's awesome. And I was um, hanging out with Nate Peterson, who whose um, wife, um, April Tuhoki, is also a young adult writer. And we were all hanging out together, realizing that we all liked kind of macabre, weird, sort of sciencey medical history things. And she said to us, you know, you and Nate should write like a nonfiction book about something medicine-y. And I was like, well, that's funny. haha." And I kind of forgot about it. And then Nate emailed me a couple months later. He's like, I think we should write about quacks. And I said, that's fascinating. I never got to learn about this in medical school. Let's do it. And not having ever written anything like this or done it, we put together a proposal. Um, we 
written about it. And our agent was like, great. And we sold the book. And the next thing we know, we were writing Quackery and that sort of started the whole thing. So it, it kind of came out of, um, it just came out of opportunity of connections and um, me also feeling like my book career is so I better just like get more pots boiling on the stove because this one pot's dying. Um, and then in the end, like, you know, it just sort of, I, I kept coming up with ideas and I've, I've been very fortunate to be able to publish more books um, in a lot of different realms, which is pretty awesome. So I have a book that's going to be coming out also, and I can't talk about it that much, but it's sort of public um, with the Star Wars franchise. So that's exciting. Oh, wow. So I'm, I'm moving into the Star Wars world. That'll be very fun. And um, yeah, we'll sort of see how it, it keeps going in the future. Yeah, dystopia in Star Wars is still popular, right? I mean, that that particular oh, yeah. branch of dystopia has not gotten. Uh, people are not bored with that yet. Yeah, Star Wars is like has an endless number of stories that can be told because they are ultimately they're just they're just amazing stories of light and darkness and good and bad and personal struggle and you know that's. That's the human condition, right? So it never gets tiring. Well, so what is it about dystopia that you think was so popular and how do people get bored of? Is it just that we're living in too overt of a dystopia now and it maybe didn't seem quite so overt 10 years ago? I think maybe that's a little bit of it. I think um, I think dystopia in young adult was just really, really popular because the the way that the industry had been going was there was a lot of contemporary fiction going on in YA and there was a lot of fantasy. So like fairies and vampires and things like that. And so from that fantasy shifted a little bit more interest in science in like um, sci-fi and with sci-fi, there's just a natural, um, you know, dystopian just goes hand in hand with, with science fiction. So um, as far as like, you know, interesting characters, interesting world world building that sort of thing and everybody i think loves a dystopian story because it's ultimately about underdogs and we love we love an underdog story we we want a happy ever after where we see somebody you know fighting insurmountable odds who you know has goodness in their heart you know fight these these terrible forces and and succeed right so they're ultimately very satisfying stories so it's not a surprise to me that there's always going to be dystopian stories out there there's always going to be um you know um, people writing these books even when they're not trendy um but the trend always comes back because ultimately those stories are really really um enjoyable yeah, but isn't it interesting that they they sort of I don't know if it's just oversaturated or if they just became a little bit less exciting. I mean, is it that the underdog story like are, are people getting more cynical right now? Is it just too like we're we're we don't buy that the underdog can do anything? It, I don't. Maybe I'm just projecting here because obviously I I've got yeah, some criticisms. <laughs> yeah, um, no, I think maybe there is a little bit of that. And I think there was an over. Honestly, I think that it was just an oversaturation of the market. I think people were reading dystopian after dystopian and seeing them on the screen and and they were like okay we've kind of had enough of the whole hunger games thing and and um we're ready to move on to something something different so i think it was uh, a market saturation problem um right now i think because we're kind of living in a very unpleasant world where the pandemic is like you know the aggressor here it's it's like you know it's it's actually hard i think to write a pandemic story like a pandemic novel right now because people are like why do i want to immerse myself in this in this book on pandemics when i'm living in one which is you know probably one of the issues with us coming out with this book when we did even though we didn't plan it but um it's 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 tough to read about this kind of stuff when you're living in it you're sort of tired of it which i understand you know but there's also a lot of really fascinating stuff in the book that's um I think just so enlightening and um, and so entertaining. Um, like I didn't actually know that there was a relationship between the brassiere and the modern N95 mask until I researched it. And I was like, this is kind of cool. Like this is a little interesting sort of silver lining to the history of pandemics for sure. You want to give us a tease of that one for anyone who hasn't read the book? Yeah, yeah, sure. So there's a chapter in the book that... Um, towards the end that we talk about like all the different things that happened in pandemics that we learned from and just you know ended up being a really positive thing and one is the 
development of the N95 mask. So there was this um, lady named um, Sarah Turnbull who, um, I think it was like in the 1950s. So she was working for House Beautiful magazine and she was like an editor or something like that. And somebody from 3M, which is like company that um, makes the post-it notes, you know, mm-hmm. um, asked her, hey, we need to, w- let's like work on um, a polymer that can make sort of bendable like ribbons for wrapping presents. And she's like, yeah, sure, that sounds cool. And while she was working on this, they came up with these these um, these textiles, these fabrics. And she was like, oh, these would actually make like really great like foam inserts and bras and shoulder pads. So she was like, okay, that's great. Um, and then a couple of years later, she had family member in the hospital and seeing people wearing masks. And she was like, why can't they come up with like a better mask than the ones that people are wearing? And she went back to this sort of foam cup and, um, with, along with 3M, they helped develop it into an actual respirator mask, which is the N95 mask. So um, I don't know if you remember early on in the pandemic, there were like pictures of the people like in Walmart wearing like bras on their faces because nobody could get a mask. So people were just like putting together whatever they could. And lo and behold, they actually had something. <laughs> it wasn't <laughs> such a terrible idea when you think about it. <laughs> Probably yeah. a terrible idea to look at. And to experience, but you know, yeah. when push comes to shove, it probably did work a little bit. I, I had a friend who described that period as like a everyone looked like they walked out of a Mad Max movie, just with whatever they could find to put on their faces for a while. Oh my god, I know, like plastic, gigantic, like five gallon pretzel <laughs> yep. containers they would stick on their head and all that sort of stuff. Like everybody was just really just MacGyvering the heck out of everything they could to make it work. If you're just joining us, I'm talking today with Lydia Kang about her new book, Patient Zero, A Curious History of the World's Worst Diseases, which is available now wherever you get books. Let us know what you think. Follow Riverside Chats on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Another theme that I see in the book that I think is helpful, constructive, and more positive is trying to think, and it connects back all the way to us talking about my cat and his C. diff, uh, is just... (laughs) The way humans in the world around us interact and that sometimes our lack of a cultural connection to nature can come back to bite us in a more dramatic way than, you know, something like – like you, t- you talk about bats, right? Then like a bat in an attic might be less of an issue. And you actually have a whole section about bats and the way that we maybe shouldn't villainize a creature that helps reduce mosquito populations, pollinates fruits, may actually be yeah. it, it, instrumental in learning about our own health. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I know. I was I was really into writing that little page on the bats because I was like, bats are not inherently evil, even though we think of them as like, you know, vampire bats and scary looking beasts or whatever like that. But they are very, very, they have a right to exist as well. And they have, a, we have a lot to learn from them. So, um, you know, they, there's a reason why bats have all these viruses like rabies and Nipah virus and Marburg and Hendra and SARS and MERS and all this kind of stuff. And and they don't get completely wiped out by them. And we could learn a lot from that instead of sort of vilifying them. Um, but I don't, I, what was your question? I just started going off on bats. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I'm glad you're excited. I like bats too. I think they're cool. But uh, no, my, my question basically is, I mean, how do you go about changing our cultural attitudes toward wilderness or wildlife in ways that have this sort of tangible benefit to our health? Because I don't know that that's often a part of the conversation around those topics. Um, that's a really good question because it's, it's hard for people. I think when it's far away, it's hard for people to feel like they have a stake in, in that. Uh, if it's your backyard, you know, like there's a pipeline that's going to be built in your backyard or they're going to raise this park in order to build a development it's easy to get more angry when it's in your backyard and when you see that and you realize you're going to be like you know there's this ecosystem that's going to be destroyed um i think that our big challenge is going to be taking that concern out of what happens just right in and around your neighborhood or your own community um to something larger and maybe the the answer to how we take a bigger view on how to take better care of the world around us is if you take really good, if everybody takes really good care of their community, then, you know, as a whole, we we will do better. Um, But, you know, I think that that's also a luxury. So, right. Like having the, the the bandwidth and the the energy to be like, I'm going to care about the environment also means that you are not struggling to pay your electric bill and you actually have a car that you could maybe drive to work. And so, I think that we have to also work on the disparities in the human population 
because there's a lot of people who aren't care because they're just trying to, to survive. And I think that if we can shore that up better, it means we also have the collective energy to work on um, the world around us. So I think these things can happen simultaneously. I don't think they're like mutually exclusive or anything like that, but it's something that I think about, like, it's not as easy as being like, oh, well, I have $20. I'm just going to, you know, throw this at my local environmental agency that's like cleaning up the park or something like that. It's, it's much bigger than that. It's how we live. It's what our houses are made of. It's what we consume and buy from, you know, companies and things like that. And, um, driving our car. So it's, it's, it's pretty, it's a pretty complicated question that I probably can't answer <laughs> um, that, that easily. So, yeah. Well, it, it, you know, it's something that I think about a lot and we try to talk about it in the show and basically just, I think the the idea of connection, the idea of all of the elements of our body that need to be connected to the world around us. I mean, seeing ourselves, as you said, I think earlier is sort of this small part of this big, these big systems around us. It seems like, incorporating that into discussions, whether it's about health, whether it's about whatever we're consuming, that seems like a healthy part of the discourse that like we don't have a lot of (laughs) healthy discourse in general. So I guess it's just something where even in this book, it seems like you are advocating for people to reexamine how we relate to nature and how that impacts us on a daily basis. And that can start to open your eyes to other things that maybe will be helpful for everybody and everything. Right. I mean, I'm going to, I'm going to switch to being optimistic now after being pessimistic for 40 minutes. Right. And I think there should be optimism. I think that, you know, I think that you can take a, a larger worldview of, of your life and, and how you do things and, and how, um, how we exist in this, in this world and, and be optimistic about changing um, things for the better and making even like incrementally small changes so that um, it could, it can make a difference because one small thing isn't that big of a deal, but if we're all doing something, it, it can help. So, yeah, I mean, I think that's probably one of the biggest um, sort of conclusions of this book is, is that um, we are a part of a much bigger world and we have, there are huge consequences to how we live day by day. That is the reason why there are these zoonotic spillover events all the time. You know, we are burning forests and we are having these massive agricultural, you know, feedlots and stuff like that that are doing weird things to the environment and, um, and putting us, you know, you know, all these antibiotics being put into like, you know, cattle feed and things like that. Like there are major consequences to the individual. Um, But I think it's sometimes people forget that they can't, they just can't see it, you know? Um, But unfortunately I think, you know, with uh, weather changes, with natural disasters, with things like this pandemic, it might wake people up to saying like, Oh gosh, yes, we could do better. Um, And what are some of the things that we could do to do better? So did writing this book and learning about the history of infectious diseases and our cultural reactions to them, does any of that change your impression of what the future might look like for us? It's hard to say. It's so hard to predict. Um, There's so much chaos kind of going on right now that I feel like it's hard to see beyond what's going to happen just this year. But I think that, yes, I think that there are going to be bigger changes that happen ultimately. I think Honestly, um, there are a lot of generations that are up and coming that are pretty frightened about what's happening. And even though there's a lot of changes that are happening to the environment that are out of our hands, there's still a lot that can be done and there will be action that will be taken on that. But I think it's going to still be a slow change. But, you know, if we were to, you know, put our thoughts in a time capsule and look back in 20 years from now, I think we'll be like pretty impressed that we got a lot farther than we thought we were going to um, in some realms. And I think there are going to be some places where things are going to get worse. So I don't want to be like all gloom and doom. There is some optimism there because ultimately, like it comes down to it, like we are very scrappy species. We want very much to survive. And I think that we're going to try really hard to do that um, when push comes to shove, when when things get real bad, that changes will be made so that we can survive because that's what we do best. Well, just in the, the context even of like germ theory and how radically that's reshaped our way of thinking about everything, uh, you know, about our bodies and about the world. I mean, do, do you anticipate, is there going to be another uh, just revolutionary concept like that? Do you think in like 200 years we'll look back at this and think, wow, we, we were so far away from understanding anything? <laughs> um, I think that there's a lot of things in, so I'll speak for what, for, with what I know. I think within healthcare, there are going to be huge changes that we will look back on and be like, oh my God, I can't believe that we did this. Like 
like cancer screening, for example, right now is very necessary, but I think in the future we'll look like, you know, it was kind of crude. We used to like take women's breasts and smush them between glass plates. And like, you know, this is how we looked for breast cancer. And now it's like, um, you know, it's like a little pinprick or it's like you wear a monitor and like the second a single cancer cell shows up, like you get a red light and like you get it zapped out and there is no, you know, I think it's just going to be so different and I can't imagine exactly how, but it's, it's going to be just a complete game changer. So that's always changing. Um, with the fact that with CRISPR and the fact that like, you know, um, DNA can be altered so easily, I think we're going to see a lot of other things, you know, the mRNA vaccine is probably one of, uh, is like one of the biggest changes of our lifetimes, as far as like, you know, vaccine development that we'll see, and there's going to be, you know, a lot more. So we're already seeing it now. Let's not forget some of the things that are happening now that are happening very, very quickly. This is the fastest rollout of a vaccine that's ever happened. And, um, and, and a new, a really novel vaccine on this level, the mRNA vaccine has been just incredibly amazing. So yeah, I think there's definitely more to come. So we have a lot to look forward to there. Well, so I know Patient Zero has been out for a little while, but do you have any upcoming events we can plug here? Or is there just a place listeners should go to maybe get more information about the book or all your various creative endeavors that you have going on at all times? Yeah, sure. So uh, you can check out my website, LydiaKang.com, and I have an updated event list. Um, I think next um, next Thursday on the 13th, um, Nate and I are doing um, a live event, a virtual, sorry, live event, not recorded. Um, so that's happening. I think I'm going to be at the Savannah Book Festival with Nate. That's going to be in February. So if you're in Georgia, um, we'll be there. I mean, obviously, fingers crossed that it's safe enough for us to be there. Um, but uh, yeah, those are, those are two events. And I think I'm also doing a virtual library visit in Chicago um, coming up soon as well. So just keep an eye out if you want to hear more about Patient Zero. Um, things are coming down the pipe. And otherwise, people should just Watch for more Star Wars news. Wait wait for your name yeah. to pop up. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's great. I loved getting the chance to read this book and to talk to you. Uh, thank you so much for being here today. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. Riverside Chats is a production of KIOS 91.5 FM, Omaha Public Radio. The show is produced and edited by Courtney Bierman. Our original music is written and performed by The Real Zebos. Our artwork is done by Ben Matukowitz. Remember, you can find the backlog of all of these conversations wherever you get podcasts. Subscribe today and please leave us a review. As always, thank you for listening. I'm Tom Noblock.